Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, assistant editor. I'm joined today by Hattie Williams, news reporter, and Madeline Davies, deputy news editor. On this week's podcast, we talk about how the church has been leading the response to the Grenfell Tower tragedy in West London, what people are saying about who the next Bishop of London should be, and Madeline talks to the Reverend Rachel Mann about her new book, Fierce Imaginings, The Great War, Ritual, Memory and God. At least 30 people have been confirmed dead and more than 20 remain in hospital after a huge fire destroyed a 24-storey residential block, Grenfell Tower, in West London early on Wednesday. Hattie has been at the scene talking to residents and to churches who are coordinating emergency relief. Can you tell us more, Hattie? So the churches were very quick to respond um, to this uh, awful event. Um, it, the fire started at about one in the morning um, and by 3am St Clement's Church, which is just down the road in Notting Hill, opened its doors, turned on the lights. Uh, the vicar was telling me yesterday um, just to make uh, sure that it was a presence and that people could come uh, because there were a lot of uh, people who were confused, um, dazed, not really sure what was going on, not just residents but also um, locals as well and the whole thing has been incredibly moving and also horribly distressing um, for those involved. Uh, the church has been providing prayer space um, for all faiths, um, the chaplains have been a presence on the streets, uh, talking to people, offering that comfort and also very early on the Bishop of Kensington talked to the emergency services. Um, he was actually allowed beyond the cordon, so he was at the foot of this burning building actually talking to the ambulance, the, the firefighters and, and police. Um, and some of the things he was telling me were really quite um, quite shocking. And the Archbishop of Canterbury paid a visit on Wednesday? Yes, a, a fairly low-key visit um, just to see some of the things that were going on. Um, the main activity that day was uh, collecting huge uh, piles of donations from uh, not just local residents um, but uh, further afield. Um, when I went to visit on Thursday, uh, there were several people on the tube carrying bags of um, donation suitcases, um, clothes, toiletries, but also um, food and water as well. I mean, there were several of the streets were lined with uh, big packs of bottled water which people were handing out and also to the um, police who were uh, dutifully standing uh, on most corners it was actually quite difficult to get to um, St Clement's because so many of the roads were, were cordoned off. There's a great deal of anger around understandably and um, do you think church can provide a sounding board for people yes absolutely um i actually spoke to the area dean uh, mark donahue on um thursday yesterday um and he was saying that the church although it is um important for the church to provide a practical response and an emotional response um it is also uh he felt their place to express concern and and be with these people who are angry and actually say that the church isn't satisfied with this and it's not good enough, really. When I asked him about the the rich-poor divide, he was quite vocal um, because there is a question that, you know, these people in, in these huge tower blocks um, haven't been given the same uh, concern and consideration that perhaps the £5 million blocks next door... Um, would, would be getting so there is a lot of anger and I heard a bit of that on the streets as well. And the church is very involved in, in the short-term response what role do you think churches can play long-term to help people affected by this? 
Uh, well, longer term, um, they're very keen to say, the clerics that I talked to, that the church would be uh, support for those who have been affected because I think they're worried that when the media scrum, as they put it, went go away, um, obviously these people, their lives are completely changed forever. Should the next Bishop of London ordain women priests, affirm gay clergy, do more to attract children and teenagers into church, or value pastoral diligence as much as high-profile mission? These were among the issues raised at a public consultation held on Tuesday evening. Madeline was there. How was it? It was interesting. I think it was quite dominated um, by this question of the ordination of women uh, priests. I'd also sort of comment that it wasn't that well attended. Um, There was probably around 40 people there. Um, And considering, as far as I know, this was the only public consultation, um, perhaps it could have been advertised more widely in order to get um, sort of a larger audience, Um, perhaps more young people, um, sort of generally a more diverse crowd perhaps in terms of age and ethnicity. You said the ordination of women as priests was was raised initially. Of course, we've had the what is known as the London Plan in place. The last Bishop of London, um, Richard Charters, um, didn't ordain uh, either men or women as priests. Um, many of the contributions um, at this week's consultation were suggesting that it was absolutely crucial that his successor, whoever that is, um, would change this policy. It was really important to have the bishop of this diocese ordaining women as priests, um, supporting them and possibly even placing them in more senior positions such as in suffragan posts. We did hear sort of alternative viewpoints, so uh, there was a laywoman from one church who wanted the London plan to continue and suggested that the diocese had flourished um, despite the plans that are being in place before. Um, but I'd say that that was a, probably quite a minority view um, in that particular audience. What part do you think Holy Trinity Brompton will play? They're obviously a big feature of the Diocese of London. Well, certainly when I interviewed Richard Charters uh, when he was leaving the post, he had been incredibly supportive of HDB. Um, It's not actually of his tradition, but he'd spoken about the energy that existed there and the fact that he didn't want to lose that, that he wanted to draw on its strengths um, and see them shared within the diocese and more widely. Um, So I would expect his successor probably to build on that. Although it's notable that the current strategy at HDB seems to be focused on planting in other dioceses. So I don't know if it's right to expect more HDB plants within the diocese. I suspect it's going to be more of an exporting model. Looking at the Crown Nominations Commission, um, there's at least two um, prominent evangelicals on there. There's the Bishop of Wilsdon, Pete Broadbent, and also Charlie Screen from St Helens Bishopsgate. Um, so obviously that voice will be heard on the commission. So what were your favourite parts of the paper this week, Hattie? Uh, well, I just wanted to point to the leader this week. I thought it made an interesting point about the election campaign, um, particularly about uh, the Prime Minister, Mrs May. Um, I'll just quote it here. It says, Mrs May was paralysed throughout the campaign by an inability to give any details of any policies without alienating one or possibly both of the constituencies of the, the Conservatives were seeking to attract, returning UKIP voters and the centre-left. She had to say something, though, and so agreed to a campaign that began and ended with attacks on the leadership for, well, having different views. To her credit, she was not very good at fronting in such a negative campaign, but embarrassment and timidity are not often vote winners. I was really interested in the review of a film about Whitney Houston by a film reviewer, Stephen Brown, um, which makes the point that she grew up 
um, in church, basically singing gospel music. And um, he reflects on the role that faith played in her life, um, which apparently this film um, brings out to, to quite a strong degree. We've got a very powerful piece by the Bishop of Burnley, Philip North, about the election. And he says that he thinks the election may have signalled a change in national mood away from the politics of greed, more towards the politics of relationships. And he says less and less do people want promises of an ever fatter wallet. So I do um, recommend that one highly. We'd also just like to point to Malcolm Geith's back page column on restringing guitars. This is really worth reading, especially if, like me, you spent much of your teenage years restringing your guitar in your bedroom. He says, what makes restringing seem so strangely restorative? Perhaps the outward actions, the slackening of the old strings, the stretching of the new, and the gradual tautening until there is a resonance, pitched as before but brightened now, and clarified. Perhaps there is some inner correspondence. The restringer is himself restrung, the tuner tuned. The Reverend Rachel Mann is an Anglican priest, poet, writer and broadcaster based in Manchester and a regular contributor to the Church Times. Madeleine Davies spoke to her about her new book, which is published by Dartman, Longman and Todd. It's called Fierce Imaginings, The Great War, Ritual, Memory and God. You write at the start that you became fascinated by war as a child, and I wondered if you could reflect a bit on um, why you think that is. And part of the fascination, I think, came from, firstly, of course, obviously being exposed to stories about the First World War, the Second World War at school at a, as a, at, a, at a very young age. But then, crucially, connecting those stories with these curious, in my eyes, ancient, in my eyes, silent old men who were my grandfathers. And I think it was at that point where I began to see that the... These stories, in some ways, are, you know, of, of daring do, of, but equally of, of horror and terror centred around war, could actually be humanised, drew me further into the story. And, you know, obviously, I, I, I'm speaking now as, a, as, a, as an adult, as a child, I wouldn't have been able to articulate it in quite that, that kind of way. There was just something extraordinary about hearing, for example, about the, the trenches, Hearing about well, I mean, from what in my eyes as a tiny little dot of a of a kid, what I thought were quite exciting stories, but then finding out that Granddad Sam, Granddad Bert have both been soldiers in the First World War, and they somehow didn't quite fit that heroic pattern, if you see what I mean. That I mean, not only were they incredibly old, of course, at this point, but but. They weren't interested or excited about talking about those stories. In fact, they, they, it was almost the opposite, that they, they wanted to avoid uh, the war at all costs. You talk about um, there's some sort of tensions in the book. And so you say that you find the notion of patriotism troubling, um, but that you're romantic about England. Um, and you also say that you're not ready to let go of the myth of military honour. I just wondered, um, did writing the book help you to resolve any of these questions or, or did it leave you with more? If I'm entirely honest, I think that, dare I say it, if it isn't too pompous, it simply took me deeper into the mystery. So, so not towards resolution, but I think sometimes the further we go into the complexities of something, it's not so much the more we understand it, but the more we appreciate the nuance 
and therefore I think the more that I researched um, around the First World War, the more I found out about my grandfather's stories, the more that I guess I tried to foreground my own puzzlement about, on the one hand, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly patriotic. And, and in some respects, I mean, some people say to me that I couldn't be more English. You know, I mean, you know, that, you know, you, if you cut me, you'd find apple juice, you know, it's sort of, you know, that sort of Englishness that goes on in me. But at the same time, intellectually, I, I, I'm aware that there's something quite distasteful in my head anyway about mindless flag waving. Um, I'm also, as a Christian, I think, very alert to how um, we're called into a, a way of peace. And yet there is something extraordinary about soldierly courage. And of course, Aristotle uses the soldiers as the model of courage. So I think the further that that I, I, I went into the book, the further I, I meditated on stuff, the more mysterious it, at one level things became, the less it was about just saying, and now I understand, now I, uh, you know, I've got a clear position on what it means to be patriotic. The more, uh, you know, now I, I'm, I'm clear on what Englishness means. Um, I mean, I think, as I say in the book, I talk a bit about the pastoral mystery of, of England, and I'm, I'm simultaneously conscious that, that there's a, there's a falsehood about that, because, it, it, it is mythological. It's, um, you know, who's England? Um, you know, when, when we talk about England, whose interests does that serve? And yet, I mean, I think it's just that, that thing about being formed in a place and carrying with you um, a, a history, you know, and I think all all of us who are, have been formed in any nation carry with us a whole set of myths and stories. We carry them with us and they're both they both. Feed us, and yet, because of our imperial past, I think that um, there's a sense in which we live on a poisoned heritage as well. So, I, I think I've just gone deeper into the mystery. Sort of linked to that, you also say that you want to steer a difficult path between the holy conviction of those who claim war is always wrong and the fearsome passion of those whose hackles rise at any questions raised about Britain's prosecution of international affairs. Um, given that there's a sort of difficult path to be trod by you. I wondered if you could reflect a bit on being an Anglican priest and actually having to lead Remembrance Day services. How do those tensions play out in the way that you go about that? It really does come home around November um, and, and all of those rituals of remembrance that, that I and other Anglican priests are, are caught up in. I mean, I think, think that, that what I want to acknowledge is a desire to resist at all cost, a kind of a, a cheapening of the remembrance. Um, I mean, this is this isn't really my story, but um, uh, a colleague of mine told me a story about how one Remembrance Sunday a few years back, um, he was there doing his duty as a as a, an Anglican priest, and they were having the two minutes silence, and someone from I, I think it was the British National Party had turned up with, um, uh, you know, a, a, a garland of poppies with BNP uh, stamped in the middle and just how impossible that situation felt, you know. And I, and I think in my own case, I'm, of course, I want to resist the way in which, for the sake of politics, these rituals can be 
subverted, really, to try and make a kind of exclusionary point, a point that says, well, remembrance is only for this group of people and it's not for others. You know, where I want to be is to, is to be able to say, we keep that silence because we really are remembering all. Certainly we're remembering all of those who, who lay down their lives in sacrifice from um, the, the British and Commonwealth armed forces. But I think that increasingly as we move forward, 21st century we need to we need to recognize that that there are victims on all sides you know that there are people who just simply must be remembered and they mustn't be politicized and 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 maybe it is maybe it's too easy for a, a priest to try and say i want to claim some higher ground um in which all can be remembered but i think I think from that place, as long as we still we don't lose sight of particular memories, particular names, particular stories, we're in a place where actually we can still touch the divine. What I, what I mean by that is that part of the power of silence is that it takes away our easy words. And those are, you know, whether they're political words, they're, they're liturgical words. And in that silence, I still hope that, that, that God can meet us and that, um, you know, whether we're people of faith or not, that the divine is available. Um, and so in a sense, that's where I always want to be as a priest. I, I, of course, I can be uncomfortable about some of the flag waving that can emerge around, um, remembrance tied rituals. But at the same time, I think it has this core at its center which exposes all of that as well as inadequate to the reality of 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 sacrifice and the need to remember kind of linked to that i wondered um obviously some of the things that you said in the book um would be seen by some as quite provocative so you say the cenotaph is one way that a community hides the truth of its violence from itself and I wondered if you were anxious when you were writing the book um, about how some of the um, reflections that you've included might be taken by people um (laughs) I'm not I'm not afraid of controversy I guess in one sense you know I I I am someone who in any number of areas has I, I hope thoughtful and but 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 forcefully um held views the one thing that that i try and do in that chapter about the cenotaph is um to draw out the way in which the cenotaph can be a way of concealing a society's violence as 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 you know you 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 just said then but i i also i think in that chapter try and draw out how in some respects, given the society that Britain was in 1919, it really had very few other options, if you see what I mean. You know, that such was the level of trauma of the First World War that, and, and, and how unprecedented it was as a, as a cultural catastrophe. What else could a, an imperial power do? But try and construct these, these spaces. And, you know, in, in a sense, that's what the cenotaph is. It's an empty tomb. It's a space which is there to hold memory, um, to hold the dead, to hold the hallowed dead. So I suppose what I'm, I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to say, Madeline, is that 
Yes, there is a sense in which I'm making a bold point there and there will be people who will give me some kickback and say, you know, oh, you flipping lefty, you know, isn't it typical, you know, you can't, you can't honour um, the past in an appropriate way. You have to try and tear things down. But at the same time, I want to, I want to be generous to that society as was and say, I'm not sure it had many other choices. But equally, if we are prepared to take seriously my my rhetorical and my critical point, I hope that challenges us to to be bolder in the ways in which we dare to remember. So I'm not in any way trying to diminish the power of remembrance and the the importance of ritual and and the centrality of of of, of not forgetting. In one respect, I want us to be bolder in our remembering and not think it's just okay to do it once a year and just get on with the rest of our lives. Um, I, there's a sense in which I want us to to take that remembrance as a starting off point for us to be challenged into new ways of going on. You say that the battles were the death knell in some sense for some patriarchal imperialistic conceptions of God, um, but also that the CV has yet to move on from this dead male-centric God. I just wondered if you could reflect a bit more on that for our readers. Uh, yes, I mean, in, in one respect, I, I, I often think this is, the, this is the area where I probably will get people most annoyed with me, really, you know, suggesting that, that somehow the patriarchal God died on the, the, the wire of Passchendaele and, and Flanders. But I find it hard to get round that, that I think that the the God who was celebrated, who was known, who was promoted by the Church of England around the time of the First World War was one that was shaped very much through a voice of privilege, a voice of, of what we might call muscular Christianity. It had been shaped through the language of the public schools and of the traditional universities. This was a God who was most definitely he and one who, as, as the historian Modris Eckstein's puts it, could very readily be fitted into a khaki uniform. You know, that this is a this is a Jesus who would march out to battle at, at, at the front of his troops, not necessarily carrying a sword, but carrying a sword surrogate, the cross with which to defeat one's definitive enemies. And that God, that God couldn't survive the, the horror of the trenches. Um, that kind of muscular God who can overcome all situations. Um, you know, another historian, Alan Wilkinson, says that, that the the war poets present Christianity and Christ more clearly than than the Church of England did at that time. And there's a real truth to that, that sense that you find in the poetry of someone like Wilfred Owen, of a God who finds himself at the front line with other soldiers in uniform, but he's suffering in solidarity with others, not necessarily leading them on to a glorious and easily achieved victory. So in that sense, I think that God has died, but it's incredibly tenacious. 
and she echoes through time. And the way in which we still speak about God, it seems to me, is so very much still constructed with that image. And the Church of England, let's be clear, is not the Tory party at prayer anymore. It isn't It isn't a public school, upper middle class religion anymore if it ever was. But nonetheless, I still think that those those positions are incredibly influential in the church that, that we've inherited. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, www.churchtimes.co.uk. If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer, one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening. Thank you.